Welcome to What Won't She Say? We are Sonia Mastic and Sarah Zimmerman, and we have a lot on our minds that wants out. We are fortunate to know many powerful, hilarious, brilliant, and vulnerable women who will join us here to share their brains and lives. We'll talk about love, loss, sex, marriage, aging, parenting, mental and physical health, racism, sexism, ableism, pop culture, and whatever the hell else we want. It's fair to say it's true. What won't she say? (laughs) I I see what you did there. The the point is that we will share it all. Because sharing is caring. (laughs) Good lord. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on What Won't She Say? Hello and welcome to What Won't She Say podcast. Today, Sonia and Sarah, myself, we are talking to Miss Tasha Skillen. Tasha was diagnosed at 37 with a debilitating illness and lost both of her businesses and spent the next two years bedbound, missing moments with her two young kids, husband, and her purpose. Through this life-altering diagnosis born from unaddressed CPTSD, she discovered her identity had been buried underneath her roles as leader, entrepreneur, and mom and wife, as well as the rules, obligations, and expectations women have been burdened with globally. She is the co-founder of Rules and Rebellion and the host of the Boldly Becoming You podcast, where she inspires and guides women to their inner wisdom and trusting themselves again. Tasha brings 20 years of experience as a relationship activist. She leads her programs, her podcast, and community to help women reach their highest potential, releasing burnout habits, perfectionism, and procrastination tendencies, and creating sustainable practices to feel confident and free to uncover and be their truest self. Welcome, Tasha. Thanks. It makes me sound so important. Now I want you just to move in and be my life coach. Just walk around with me after that bio and just, you know, we need, we need to fix some things. My husband would argue that is not a great experience. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do tell. Let's just launch right in. So he doesn't encourage. So that's spontaneous coaching that was not asked for or paid for. You're just there to help. (laughs) That was the first 10 years of our marriage. Yes, that's what that was. That's what that looked like. I actually have a funny story. My son, who's 15, um, when we were, when they were still in school, we unschooled them now, but when they were still in school, I instituted and volunteered to run a kindness club as a, an extension of the PTA, right? Like the group of parents getting together, trying to make the school a good place. And so I mandated that my children go to this because I would have to find something else for them to do otherwise. And so like the second or third night, it's like a weekly thing. The second or third night we're at the dinner table. My husband is asking our son, you know, how was it going? And he's like, honestly, I live in kindness club 24 hours a day. I don't know why I have to do this. <laughs> I live, I live here. kindness club. All right, Bye. kid, I get it. <laughs> I always wonder how kids whose, whose parents are also like teachers or, lead, you know, like in their lives outside, well, you're doing it right <laughs> now. Your kids are, you're schooling and, mm-hmm. and mommy. I mean, that's a lot of time together. It's so much time together. <laughs> <laughs> there was I think it was yesterday. There's a meme circulating around about a guy who um, his English teacher was his dad and, and he, it's his villain backstory. And his villain ba- <laughs> backstory was that his dad said, um, of all the kids in this class, there's only one that I'm sleeping with his mom. <laughs> and that's how he introduced the English class for that year. So oh I'm saying God. you can maybe have some fun with it, you know? Oh, God. I think that <laughs> might be adding another couple of years of therapy that I don't have put away for the fun. <laughs> 
So you have such a fascinating story and I know it's full of change that you never wanted or anticipated or, or would choose for yourself, but it has certainly, you know, brought you to this other like understanding of yourself and um, then been able to, you've been able to gift other, so many other people with what you've learned from that. So wherever you want to jump in, tell us kind of what, uh, what your experience, what, what has led you to today and what today is like for you as well. I think that the, the, the main catalyst at this point in the 41 years of been doing this humaning thing, it was the, the diagnosis and it was the three years leading up to the diagnosis in 2017. So in early 2014, I was in year, I think 11 or 12 of being in a direct sales business. I grew up in entrepreneurship, so it, it was just a natural leap to do something else that was similar. And I had been at the top of the company within the second or third year I was doing it because and that sounds all like braggy and, and, um, you know, excellent and inspiring, but the reality is, is that that is what, and landed me in bed 11 years later. Um, because what did it take to be in the top? I mean, I, you had to here. do top sales, top recruiting. I was the youngest, I, you know, when there were for being the youngest in the company to do these things. And it really, what it took was to sacrifice everything else that is important to me. Right. So like you were hustling so hard. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was, all the time thinking about how I could get to the, create the next opportunity for me to, me to book another party, to make another sale, to recruit another person. And I genuinely believed that I was helping all these people because I was talking about sexual health and wellness. And so it was not mainstream. It was definitely opening eyes. I was able to hold space for women, hundreds of women a month to be able to like lean into something that was very scary and create a safe space for them. So it, it all was well-intended, but the mechanisms that were activated in me long before I entered that, that community and that organization were of hyper productivity mm. and my doing is where my value came from. Mm -hmm. And so the doing in that, in that world, the doing and the doing and the doing and the doing you get recognized. I mean, it's like addictive women, probably. Oh my right? gosh. I mean, it's the only place in, on the planet that women are actually recognized and appreciated. Mm. But the other side of that is it's dark because you're feeding this thing externally that isn't going to actually fill you up because as soon as you become sick, as soon as you are not going after those high numbers again, you're not being recognized at all. And so you learn quickly. If you have a low sales month, you're not recognized. It's never about you. It was about what you were doing for them. Of course. And, and, and you know, fall real quick as a business, that makes sense. I mean, you have to reward the people who are bringing in the bottom line, but for me, in a, as a person who was unknowingly navigating unaddressed trauma, and had a slew of coping mechanisms that were designed to be to to minimize myself so that I could make everybody else happy and everybody else comfortable and create these unfortunately fake relationships of connectivity when I was actually deflecting any time someone was trying to get to know me I became this incredible savior for them because I was yeah. able to hold space for them to be their truest self and so that's you know, without ever revealing anything or receiving any sort of support or asking or being vulnerable. Certainly was not willing to help get, get help. I wasn't help willing to receive support. And so I was just pouring any of this whole concept, like you can't pour from empty cup. I tested that <laughs> over and over and over again. And then also in that time, you know, I, I had a baby, I had another business that I started with my then husband. I got divorced. 
then I got married and pregnant again and lost my my son's uh, father. Like all of this is happening while I'm managing this business where I'm outpouring, outpouring, outpouring. So whatever so trauma you came to, to that point in life and then it compounded with all this additional yep. new trauma. And I'm guessing none of that, you didn't have any chance or interest probably or ability to process any of that. Well, and you know, what's interesting is I just over this last year started processing the grief from 12 years ago. Yeah. of losing my ex-husband, you know, we were very amicable. We had a great relationship. We got together him and his then fiance, my husband and I, my current husband and myself and LJ all got together and did dinners together once a month. They were the first people we told we were pregnant with our, with our second. And so, um, uh, you know, but in that, in that, in that specific scenario, I was, holding space for everybody else to grieve because I didn't really have a place in the scenario. I wasn't the wife or the fiance. Mm -hmm. I was the ex-wife mm -hmm. still had eight years of a relationship and shared parenting, but there was yeah. no place in, in society for that to be something. So I was so you holding set space. years aside and you uh -huh. focused on everybody well, else. And, you and I like that you said forward. something important in society, mm -hmm. like, like meaning like this is actually a healthy space to be in, but it isn't considered, you know, okay in society to be like, in limbo of I'm no longer a significant person in your life in a romantic way, but I'm still a significant person in your life. And that has value. It's a huge loss still. Yeah. A huge loss. We're and so black and white about relationship rules, you know, don't even get me started. And if those divorce papers have been signed, you move on. You don't think, you know, you're not allowed, you don't count anymore. It doesn't, you're yeah. dead to me. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible to me that you just, people think that you just cut it off and that's healthy to do, by the way, that's what they mm -hmm. think. You cut it off and it's gone, even though you may be perfectly okay with the person. How many times have people left relationships where they're like, love them as a friend, load them as a partner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's so important. Exactly what our relationship was like. We were so much better as friends for sure. So, you know, in that process, I again was deprioritizing and, and just never was asking, what do I need? What do I want? Which are now my two most important questions that if I could tattoo on everybody's hands to see them for again? themselves, what, are, what do I need? What do I want? Because if you think about it in the morning, we wake up in the morning check with these 13 people or this condition or this system. Well, think about it. Like, honestly, if we're all thinking about when you first wake up, what is the first thing you think about is what do I need to get done today? Mm. What do I need to get done today? That's oftentimes what so many of us have been trained to think about. Or what do my kids need or what do, what do I need mm -hmm. to do for work or. Well, and that is, I mean, those are the subcategories of what I need to get done today. It's never, what do I need to get done for myself? It's what do I need to get done for this role? This, these roles that we play as women, we have learned that there are certain expectations and obligations, and it is always more output than there is input. And so serving, serving, serving. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. I loved that I was able to do that because I felt needed. And so when you no longer started, could do that. Mm -hmm that so so your value you I just, crumbled yeah I mean you know the first time I actually felt that my I can pinpoint the day that my body said you are done we've been nudging you we've been punching you and you're not listening we're you're gonna be out flat so, like, so cut off but at your knees kind of thing yep what did that feel like for you for the listeners I mean initially it was just like I felt like I had the flu for three or four weeks yeah but then two months later it I had the flu again for three or four weeks. And mm -hmm. then like, and it, it, the time of between was getting shorter and the doctors kept saying you, your lab work is not like you're healthy as a horse. Like there's nothing showing. Mm -hmm. And it started getting to the point where doctors, and this is, I know this is not 
my own experience telling me it's in my head. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you just need to do some yoga. <laughs> I'm it's, now it's, being yeah, take a yeah. vacation. It's in your head or... and your vagina because you're a woman and they don't tell men that ever. <laughs> right. Well, in eight years later, knowing what I now know about what was happening in my body, the rage that comes up, if I ever have sure. to see those people again, because I, if honestly, mm-hmm. now what I know, if I had done what I'm doing now for my body, then I wouldn't have gotten as crippling ill as I ended up getting. So, you know, headaches, fatigue. I mean, and people don't understand fatigue until you actually are in fatigue. Yeah, describe the tired. level of fatigue that you were experiencing. I mean, it's just the way I, people talk about the spoon theory and anybody who's, uh, um, has chronic illness has probably heard about the spoon theory at some, at some point, but I, I don't find that story very relatable. And so what I usually talk about is like having an old phone, like having your phone, two phones before you have the phone that you have right now, if you were to try to charge that and actually use that phone and you, let's say you started your day at eight by 10 o'clock, that phone is at 20%. If you're lucky. That's yeah. what it is to have a body who is struggling with several chronic health conditions is that you can charge the phone all night you want, but it's still not getting you past 10 a.m. Mind you, you know, my experience too is that my brain is screaming, get things done, get things done, get things yep. done. And your body's like, nope. And I literally was doing that. I was, I had to not attend a national convention where I had originally been planned to teach and train at. Okay. I couldn't even go because the stimulation was going to be so much part of my, um, symptoms was light sensitivity and sound sensitivity. Mm. So I, for a lot of that time where I was symptomatic, I was in a dark room by myself because Mm. I couldn't handle the stimulation. So I had to not go to this event. So I'm lying in bed feeling horrid and also feeling devastated that my entire team is there and I'm not there to play my role, to fulfill my obligation, to do the things I'm supposed to do. And I'm trying to type so I can get some work done, at least get something done. So I'm not completely worthless while they're all away working. Right. My hands literally froze up. I could not type. Your hands are aching. like, I said what I said, lay down. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. And I was so fucking stubborn that I was just like, I've got to find a way. I mean, that's how you wrote with your toes. I mean, I was so sickly conditioned, right? Like I was so sickly conditioned that this is the only way you're going to be valuable. And you do feel if one of the healthcare providers along the way had said, no, you just have to take yourself out of this life that you're living right now and rest. You have to fully, fully rest. You feel like that would have changed? No, because I wouldn't know. I would have been like, that's cute. I don't for somebody else. Sure. Sure. Great. Yes. But if they had said your nervous system is completely fried. And until you heal your nervous system, no matter how many supplements you take, no matter how much breathing you do, you're going to be filling a a boat that has 18 holes in it. Like there's just Mm. getting to the, and it's, and it's not lack of good intention. The medical system is just not trained to look at holistic, look at bodies holistically. And so if you're at a cardiologist and there's nothing wrong with your heart, you're fine. Move along. The, the holistic psychiatrist or psychologist that's mm-hmm. on. Yeah. I mean, that's, she talks over and over. I just got her book as well. And she talks about how that fails everywhere. So even psychology is not set for you yep. know medical and psychiatry is only now medical and they were only mm-hmm. mental before. And so everyone has this black and white stance, which behooves no one in the situation you're describing. And it didn't behoove you either to, to have to do the integrative approach probably by yourself. Well, and we know who designed these systems, right? I mean, they're yeah. able-bodied, cis, hetero, wealthy, mm-hmm. 
Christian white men. Like that is who these were designed by. Because if you look at history and women who were in leadership roles, it was all holistic tribal nations still in different parts of the country and parts of the world who are still actively regularly using ritualistic dancing and drumming as regulatory tools in the healing process, because physically we need that. We yep. need that part of the healing process. And that is, I mean, if think about it, if, if I were to go on something like Oprah or whatever, when Dr. Oz was the big, like these doctor shows and say, you just need to do some drumming. You need to do right. some shaking. People what about like, your spirituality? Yeah. Lost her fucking mind. Right. Yeah. woo woo. And so there's so much science that has been cloaked in woo that it doesn't allow us to actually or like heal. shamed for being woo. Ha- you mean mm-hmm. that people don't go near it? It has yeah. to be because you don't make money off of woo. You make money right. off of, you know, meds. Yep. And, and, and I will say to, to back up your point of, so people understand to the degree that you are not exaggerating. I am uh, recently diagnosed with ADHD and I've been reading a lot of neurodivergent books and ADHD in women or people of color or anybody that wasn't a cis white male was not done until after and you're going to hear me right. I'm not making a mistake. 1991, mm-hmm. 1991. So to this day, there's still not enough information to show how differently women present from men. And we present very differently because of our societal structure. And so, mm-hmm. so it's maddening. So you get the diagnosis, you have the CPTSD, which is, I believe, complex PTSD, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you, can you d- differentiate the two? Yeah. So PTSD is usually like a, a, a situational trauma. So we often hear about this with, um, you know, war veterans and accidents, car accidents and you know, robberies, like these moments in time that change your body forever, change your, your brain functioning, and your forever. neurological systems. Mm-hmm. CPTSD is over a period of time experiencing trauma to some degree. And so for some people, it is neglect, which is the majority of my experience. Um, some people it is, you know, actual physical abuse. Sometimes it's emotional abuse. A lot of times when you hear about women who have been in narcissistic relationships, they're dealing with CPTSD because that is a, a mechanism of a relationship being abusive over a period of time. That's manipulative and, and really fucks with your, how you think. Yeah. And so there those wasn't are really recovery are, to safety, safe places. It was right. There's no, there is no triggered. sense of safety. Yeah. Right, right. And so you're constantly exposed to the trigger. That's exactly right. You're, you're exposed to a trigger and the trauma repeatedly. And so it's complex because it doesn't just stay in that little box in that moment. It gets on everything else, which is where we see chronic perfectionism patterns. We see chronic procrastination. We see chronic, these behaviors that society has labeled as bad. And you just need to get work harder to get through. It's all rooted in your nervous system, not being able to be regulated. And get we out have my this- head, Tasha, get out. Yes. Yeah, so how your brain has been affected by this repeated, repetitive trauma yeah. changes the way that you can like be effective and do yeah. like, just live your life and do the things you need to do. Yeah. So because the systems that we have about success, right. And being productive are all based again on the able-bodied white, cis, yeah. hetero, Christian male. So no neuro, no neurodivergence, no people of color, no women. And so no, disa- no, so no disabilities. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so all these systems are not designed for us to succeed. And so then we who are never diagnosed with ADHD 
or other executive functioning differences, mm-hmm. as well as the list of other things that are not those that one white guy mm. are are those there aren't systems and methodologies that are taught because if you think about all the motivational speakers, and this is what I spent 15 years like pouring myself into when I was in this direct sales company, I'm going to, I'm going to personal develop myself into success. Every single one of them was the same profile. It was me trying to fit myself into some rich white guys methodology. Yeah. That was never going to work for me. And it's not going to work for any woman on the planet because we have a biological difference of a four week cycle that makes our ability to be consistent impossible comparatively to someone who has consistent hormone and no fluctuation. I mean, just that one biological difference was never going to produce results. And then we have these stories about ourselves that I'm failing. I need to work harder. I need to be more motivated. I shouldn't be procrastinating. You're not fucking procrastinating. There's not enough hours in the day for you to do the things that you think you're supposed to do. So that's it too, that the workload is that much greater, but it's, again, it's, it's like the softer women things, the emotional labor, the things yeah. that were, you know, the, the way that we're being friends or we're being caregivers to our children, or we're being spouses, partners is, is a different level is the, the different pile of, of needs and responsibilities than the. It's, and it's the story. practicality of it too, though. I mean, it's beyond that for her saying the thing of, of, you know, every four week cycle, I mean, it's in, it's pervasive because not only do we, we don't have the consistency because of that, but we're shamed for that. We're, we're, we're taxed for oh, hygiene, yeah. you know, for feminine hygiene where, where, you know, Ooh, periods are icky. Ooh. And I, you know, I, I'm a weightlifter and being in weightlifting, there is not a coach alive that is that, that is not a woman that, and even most women don't don't actually um, integrate into your workout uh, a period like uh, low blood pressure, uh, feeling fatigue, feeling they achy. do or they don't talk they about don't. it. And- they, they don't even work it in. They don't give you an excuse for it. You go in and you lift, you pull, and you like it. And it's like, well, I bled, you know, two pints of blood yesterday. Yeah, and like, well, it's not shit. You know, so they don't. There's no accounting for that, and you see that across the board with every single thing. And I love that you said that women are doing it too. And this is the Mm. part that is the hardest thing right now, because I was that woman. Mm. I taught literally thousands of women in those 15 years to follow the systems, to take this methodology. And it was when I was lying in bed and had lost both my businesses that I was like, how in the fuck did I get here? Like, how do I have no identity? And I started saying, why do I care about my right. hair. Why do I care about shaving? Because these are things I didn't have the luxury of doing when I only had two hours of functioning, functioning in a day. And I was like, that's not a thing. That's so good or bad. That's just like, <laughs> do you want to, or do you not want to? And then I started digging yeah. deeper and dip, deeper and deeper. And I'm like, wait a second. None of this makes any right, like, Am I choosing sense. this? Does this actually make yes. me joyful or prosperous or, you know, enlightened yeah. or beautiful to me or anything yeah. like that? Yeah. So how do you get this? So, so we're here. I mean, we could talk for hours about this. I know, so, I'm sorry. No, you're good. It's awesome. But but let's go to the next thing. So how do you get to the point where you end up becoming a teacher, to, you know, guiding people through burnout and through all these things? Where do you get from crippled in bed in a dark room because everything mm-hmm. is so overstimulating to where you are now? I Can I make one quick slide and a point that I wanted to make um, regarding chronic trauma and such? I think people of color and people who are LGBT and people, it, there's trauma just kind of existing in this world where they're not 
meant to be, or they're looked down on in all systems. Right. So I, I'm guessing that neurologically that there is, that that has to be kind of an, uh, an uphill thing anyway. And then if there's anything additionally that happens, it's gotta be even, even harder. I would think. It's so complex because it is happening at every, from every angle. And you can be a fully healed person and then you're going to continue to be getting traumatized because of the world we live in. Right. So no matter how much work you do, and this is why I've committed my, my vocabulary and our programs and things to be an ongoing, it's always, you were forever going to be on a healing journey. If you are a human in the world in this era, you have to be, you have to choose to create space in your life to continuously heal because you're going to continuously get traumatized because to be a human in our world is traumatizing. And you're told you're not being traumatized all the time as well. Right. I mean, you're, you're told that this isn't either, it's not happening at all, or you should get over it or so. And people used to say, you're so inspiring. You're so brave. I'm like, I didn't have a choice. Like, Mm. it's not like I would love to be able to say I was smart enough or I was uh, motivated enough to make these changes on my own. I literally had to have my body shutting down multiple systems for me to say, I'm going to choose to heal because the alternative was I was going to die that that's not a choice. That's, that's the, your body and your brain kicking in to, to choose to live. That's what mm. our brains are designed to design to do. So and you feel like you were on the trajectory to be the CEO dead at 50 kind of person. It's not even, I feel like the woman who diagnosed me said, you know, at that point I was about at a 40%, 30 to 40% functioning in my day-to-day experiences. And she said, so this is the diagnosis after doing some testing, you are likely going to get worse. It'll, you'll be lucky if you, if you get better, like that's mm. how this is going to go. This is a mm. 37 years old. I'm being told this with an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And at that point you, were you wheelchair bound? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Like you weren't even getting up and I mean, to- I could get myself to the bathroom, but if mm-hmm. it was leaving the house, I had to have a wheelchair. I couldn't right. walk along. What does that look like for the listeners? I mean, this sounds like an impossible situation to be in. I will tell you the thing that made it not impossible for me, I lost 95% of my, my support community during that time period, which was devastating, which added oh. actually another layer of PTSD for me that I tried to deny for a while, but ended up having to eventually deal with that without my partner. And I know this is not like the experience of most people who end up in this situation without a partner who is willing to ultimately put himself in burnout taking care of me and our two kids and working two jobs without that. And also without the financial support that we were fortunate enough to get from our, both of our families, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this. I don't know what would have happened, but it would not have been uh, an underdog story coming to help people. Like it would have, mm-hmm. it would have just gone horribly so wrong. You did have some privileges that made it so absolutely helped in your healing tremendously. I applied for disability. It took 11 months for that disability to come to me, even though I lost my income three months before I even applied. Mm-hmm. So I remember being on the phone for two hours, sometimes trying to talk to these people, trying to figure out what I needed to send and get people to send the right thing and thinking, I know because of how the world works, that there are people who are not of my privilege who are now homeless because they didn't have family to help them. 
I was going to say as a former social worker, I actually am amazed you didn't have to like have attorneys and appeals. And I mean, it's a miracle that you did end up getting help because most often it's denied and denied and denied. And it's only because the doctor that I was fortunate enough, again, privileged enough to travel to New York to see, to get the Mm -hmm. diagnosis that was not covered by insurance. Also, again, had help from family that she knew what she was doing because she's had to do this so many times. She knew what she needed to put in my paperwork so that I could gotcha. get this support. So, so you ended up getting a diagnosis. I got the diagnosis and, uh, you know, was- between my husband who was also grieving our entire future. Right. I mean, right. he was 35, his wife. Now he's been taking care of his disabled wife and their two kids for the rest of forever. So he had, um, I had been talking about writing a book for, I don't know, since I was 20. And, um, he found a way between my mom helping financially and him getting my sister to travel with me for me to go to a writing workshop down in Florida by Hay House. Mm. And the possibility was to win a publishing contract for a book that I was, I wanted to write. And so honestly, I spent the next three and a half months working on writing a book about gratitude and about how hard it is to experience and express gratitude. We can think about it. I'd, I'd had a gratitude practice, but I was very aware of how whoa, hard whoa, it was whoa. to express. Listen, we got to back up here. So you're, you're, you're in the situation. You're actually in a wheelchair. You're having all of these hardships, but your first thing to do in your mind is to write a book about gratitude. Mm-hmm. Oh my, lead me down this path. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think because I was so grateful for what I was able to see, right? Like there. So the other thing I didn't mention is that while I was getting this diagnosis, so I, I knew I had this condition, it's ME, it's called myalgic encephalomyelitis. And at the end of Can September, you explain it just briefly to people like what that means physically and mentally. I mean, it's a list of 70 plus symptoms. It's very under-researched. There's very little information about what it actually is. And there's 13 about subcategories of it. So really what it means is your body is shutting down and the scientists are taking the longest route possible to figure out why these things are happening. <laughs> Nobody mm. in that is, has this diagnosis doesn't have some kind of CPTSD. Mm. Mm. That's fascinating. So I'm in some of these Facebook groups as we do, which is one of the things I was very grateful for because I met people who had had this condition for over 20 years and were doing this without any kind of support online like that. And every week, literally every week, someone was commenting so-and-so took their life. Mm. Oh God. And I thought I cannot do that to my children. I cannot do that to my, my husband. And I had a, a, a conversation with my best friend, who's a social worker at a medical, and she's a medical social worker in New York. And she said, you have to promise me there will not be any surprises. You have to swear to me. There won't be any surprises. And I'm like, I swear to you, there won't be any surprises. I cannot promise that I won't need that to be the solution. If I end up in the painful situation that so many of these beautiful women ended up in. So that moment realizing that these people had no choice. I mean, it was these women in other parts of the world who were diagnosed as not diagnosed with this condition were put in institutions mm-hmm. and sequestered and, and in solitude. I mean, there's just, I had so many advantages in that moment and I had support. I mean, my husband, there was nothing he wouldn't do for me at any given moment to make me have a little less pain to have a little less discomfort, to be a little less sad. 
And he knew that I was scared that I would end my life, not end my mm. life, but you know, go reach the end of my life and not have done this book thing that he's known. Mm. I, and when we dated in high school, he knew I wanted to write a book when I was 16. And so, um, I, I spent eight, sometimes 10 hours a day writing, which wasn't physically possible for anything else I wanted to do. So I, I did feel, I think to some degree that this was divine effort to keep me going and to get me through the hump that I need to get through. Cause when I wasn't writing the book, I was researching, trying to find other solutions and other doctors and other problems and all of those other things. And in that journey of writing that book, I realized I'm doing this I'm having this experience because I'm not actually done yet because I can lead other people to, to whatever I'm about to find out. And I'll take people with me. I don't have all the answers, but every time I find a new answer, I'm going to make sure that I offer that. And I just kept doing that. And I keep doing that as, as every time I find something else that's helping the healing journey, my first instinct is how can I get this out to people to make it a short and easy experience for them to be able to do something with. That's amazing. So again, you've taken this pain and turned it into love. I can't imagine not. Like, I, I, I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't doing this. I mean, I just can't imagine. Well, there's knowing... so much healing in that too, right? right. I mean, th- yeah. that has to do, I mean, it, it kind of is a continuous circle, right? Yeah. I have, I mean, it's also in order to serve, I have to protect myself. Right. And you're very careful, right? So you've learned, I mean, boundaries is the the way, the only way to go at this point. Right. And it was a, it is a hard uphill battle when you have never been modeled or demonstrated boundaries. Right. I mean, never I allowed to, you didn't think you're allowed to, you thought you mm-hmm. had to give everything, like you said, pouring from a totally, you know, bone dry cup. Yeah. And now yeah. you, you know, you can't do that because you'll end up right back where, where you've been, you've seen it, you've lived it. Yeah. And you know, I started realizing when I was looking at other people talking about things like boundaries and procrastination and perfectionism, all these things that I was identifying, I, I carried with me. And I was like this, but it's not hundred percent true what you're saying. Like mm. people say, just do it when someone's procrastinating. If that fucking worked, we wouldn't be having the conversation, right? right? Like do it scared when they talk about perfectionism, if it was that easy, we wouldn't be having the conversation. So what what is the thing that needs to shift so that we can actually yeah. do something about these things that we feel one so badly about and two crippled by in terms of meeting our own goals and, and fulfilling our own purposes and having our own passions. Again, you've touched on the point of not only is nothing set up for it, but it's also mired, especially for women and all this shame. How can you not be perfect? It, like wears on you. It's ridiculous. Well, it's a lot of take the time and energy to take care of yourself. You know, how dare you be selfish? How dare you, you know, and, and this last 10 years, how dare you do that? And how dare you not do it? So now we have shame and mm. should of, I should be doing better job taking care of myself. When, say, when say, in your schedule, do you what think does that's that, possible? But don't you think there's a very strict definition of what that means to take care of yourself? I think of the course. first thing that comes to mind is being trim, being thin, being fit, right? So your mind, your peace, your rest, that's not, that's like way down the it's list earned. if there's time. Yes. And yeah, only if, if you've you done deserve those other it. Things. Yeah. If you deserve right. it. Right. When truthfully, that's probably the highest priority. And then all anyone who has ultimately been able to change their lives and their system is because they like tended to their mind, right? It's because they healed some stuff. It's a hundred percent of the time it's meeting needs that have not been met before. 
Uh-huh. Oh, let's do let's let's go down that road. We're already way longer than I wanted to be, but you're you're killing it today. It's so good, you know. We we can't just walk away. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, because that's the thing is you're hitting on we're all trying to fill the void with stuff and things and and even like uh sex and and all these things that we would try to pull in, you know, in a, a hel- unhealthy way. I'm not saying sex is unhealthy, but all these unhealthy things we're doing because we're trying to fill something. Absolutely. And the the part about this is that, that that is hard is we've been taught that we shouldn't have as many needs as we actually have. Preach. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's and a shame. Yeah. The needs, if you have more than three, you're high maintenance and it's too much and it's not worth it. And that's when like the as, worst sin to be high mm-hmm, maintenance. Mm, like, good Lord. Mm. God forbid a man ever be called that. And never there's happens. no, there's no translator. There's no version of that for men. That's not, you know. Mm. Right. Got, and it, because again, like men seem to, through all this conditioning, through both of, through both, you know, men and women, the conditioning seems to be men are allowed to have as many needs as they want. And women are allowed a couple after his, after the kids, after this, after this, after Otherwise, this, Otherwise, she's histrionic yeah. and needy yeah. and dramatic and too much. Selfish. And extra You're selfish. And selfish. Yeah. And exhausting. Absolutely. And look out for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it is the thing that I have to work with, with our clients the most is removing the filter that the ultimate version of yourself, the best version of yourself is the selfless version of yourself. Ooh. Oh God. Yes. And that is in and on everything. The, yeah. you know, when people say like one of the conversations we have frequently <clears throat> is do you feel a lot of guilt? And women will say, no, I don't feel guilt. But when you ask, when you rest or when you go to sleep at night, do you think about a list of things that you should be doing? Or if you go to do something fun or take care of yourself, is there a list of things you feel like you should have done first? And if somebody just, comes in and sees you sitting on the couch, do you immediately jump up and go, oh, God, sorry. hundred percent. Yes. Well, my favorite thing too, is that I, I'm sure you run into this and I've done it myself where, you know what I did to fix that? I wrote a list before I went to bed. So I'd remember the list in the morning because I apparently I was doing something different by doing the shell game of bullshit, <laughs> you know, like, and, and look, I don't want to shit on the pragmatic side of things because there mm-hmm. are practical things right. that we do need to do. But if we just keep listing all the things and trying to apply another set of boxes, we're trying to fit ourselves in you're still going to end up in the same place. It works temporarily, but the reason these things don't work sustainably, they're not long-term. And we end up then also having false stories about how we don't ever finish anything and how we can't keep Mm -hmm. doing something is because we're not addressing what's actually at the root of all these things. How do you do the unmet needs? Have you you learned how to make your list shorter then? I mean, that has to have been part of this, right? Is is prioritizing the absolute essentials and then telling the rest to fuck off, right? Well, yep. But the, here's the thing. Were you taught how to make decisions as a kid? Cause I was not. Nobody I was taught, taught you to follow rules. That some right. decision somebody else had made. Right. And so we look outside of ourselves to determine what needs to get done in our day. When I didn't have that option, I had to start asking myself, like, how do I make a decision on what to do with my time? Like, so you were asking yourself, what do I need and what, what do I want? Yeah. So that I can show up for the 45 minutes I can for my kids today. What do I need to do to not drain myself so that they're not disappointed that again, for a fourth night in a row, they don't get to see their mom. Mm-hmm. 
I'm fascinated by, I don't have children, uh, you have to disclose that. And I did not also did not have choices as a kid. And I'm fascinated when I go to a restaurant and I see parenting's doing amazing parenting jobs by like one, allowing their kids to make choices, but two, making the choices not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. When I'm seeing this modeling going on, it blows my, my, my inner child mind, you know, yeah. <laughs> just like, what is this weird thing called parenting? What's happening here? Called you know? <laughs> children being full people and being yeah. respected from birth. Like that is a new revel. Oh, it heals, it heals that little inner child in me. Yes. That's just like, you watch that happen and you're like, oh my gosh. So they, they gave them five choices instead of 15 and they still got to be their own autonomous people and pick whether they wanted nuggets or spaghetti or whatever. So it makes me wonder if, depending on how we experience that as kids, if sitting down looking at a menu now is like stressful or pleasurable to us because, you know, like all of that kind Ooh, of chases like us that. in life, right? Well, and that's why you have so many women who are constantly talking about how overwhelmed they are. Mm. I was that, I mean, I would, I don't know if I would don't have you think said it, like but a prideful was... thing in that too. Don't you think people are like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. This life is so, so you know, this is so stressful. Busy. It's yeah, the busy. Like that, there's like a badge that you mm-hmm. get with that, right? Rise and grind, baby. Rise yeah. and grind. Yep. And is that a uniquely American thing? Do you get the impression or like a Western, you know? So it's interesting because I've been on Clubhouse for this last almost year. I've had so many more conversations. It's an app in case anybody's yeah. not familiar. Yeah, so platform, yeah. Um, I've had so many more conversations with women from all around the world. And the theme is still the same. Women are still expected to do and behave and obey and oblige serve in a, at a capacity that is unnatural, unfair, and not effective, how it looks and how it's conditioned into us is a little bit different depending on where you're from and it, and the expectations are a little bit different, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's universal. This is, this is a men versus women thing globally. So we're going to have to start wrapping this amazing conversation up, but I want to give you a chance for a couple of things. One, I know this is very oversimplified, but um, if I'm stressed, if I'm dealing with some uh, some similar situations, what advice do you give me as far as going forward? Should I seek therapy? Should I try to do some reading? You know, one acknowledging that there's not going to be one thing that you do that fixes it all, which is a challenge for a lot of us because we want there to be a solution. Yeah. And, then and you move I definitely, on and it's behind you and you've, yeah. you're past it, but you're saying yes. it's perpetual, perpetual daily. Being able to embrace the idea that this, this decision that you make to heal is part of, it's like eating every day. Mm. It's like breathing. It's like brushing your teeth. It's a thing that sometimes will take hours, depending on like if you're doing inner child work, that shit is not for the Oof. week. Yeah. But also you know, we have five essential pivots that we talk about in our, in our company. One of them is compassionate curiosity. And mm-hmm. if, if you can do nothing else, but apply that to how you move through life with yourself and with other people, you automatically make room for healing to happen. And beautiful, beautiful. talk therapy is never going to be the solution because you can't get to your nervous system from that. So knowing that as much as our world likes to, and the UK and the US especially love talk therapy, it is helpful. It is not going to be the only thing you need if you actually want to heal and not just kind of bulldoze what's going on. So tell the listeners specifically what it is your business is, what you do and how they can get in touch with you. So our, our business is called Rules and Rebellion. Um, 
Instagram and rulesandrebellion.com and all those rules and rebellion. Thank you. Yes. I (laughs) fly through that. Um, And what we do is everything from private one-on-one coaching to group programs based on, you know, we'll do intensives for boundaries and then do an intensive on your relationship with money because not one person I've ever met doesn't have trauma with money. So we have these intensive six to eight week courses. And then we also have a, a membership because one of the things that I was really missing in the healing journey was having a community of women who understood what I was releasing and what I was embodying. And that is a different language. And if you don't have people around you that are supporting you in that process, you will not be able to do the work that you crave and the healing that you crave. And so that's the village membership is really about taking that idea of it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. Yes. The reason the child was able to be raised is because the parents had a village of people helping them raise that child. That's not just the child who was supported. And as adults, we need that as well. And so creating your own village by intention, as opposed to habitual relationships is really the prim- primary focus that I have. I'm, wow. I am embodying the, the idea of being a relationship activist mm-hmm. because we are so, we've learned to be so extremely independent that it is creating a massive disservice for us. And so we support women in creating villages for themselves to heal and to release these obligations and expectations that don't allow them to be in their lives, in their authentic selves. Sarah is now going to ask you a list of questions. We'll mention your podcast name too. Though. Oh, yes, oh, Bold, Boldly Becoming You is the name of the podcast. Uh, we just had 10,000 downloads. Oh, um, so it was a huge, huge, huge accomplishment for us. Thank you. It was very exciting. Um, and it was an experiment in my perfectionism recovery journey. Oh um, God. Cause it's never quite right. Right. Like the editing. I mean, there's, you could go, you could, you probably would never have put out the first episode if you were making it as perfect as you historically would have thought it needed to be. Is that correct? <laughs> the first episode literally took me four hours to record. And I think it's maybe 20 minutes long. Right. And now I'm like, <laughs> I think I got most of the stuff out of there. edited what that I needed to move out of there. Submit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's a beautiful yeah. thing. That's freedom right there. Yes. Right? And it feels good to, to have allowed myself to be fully human in the process. It's so relatable too, right? Like that lets other people off the hook when we let mm-hmm. ourselves off the hook. It totally does. Okay. So my questions for you are um, just quick. What are you reading and watching right now? Mm. So I'm reading something called the belief of biology. I'm sorry, the biology of belief, mm. um, as well as uh, come as you are with our book club. By and what was the other question? Nagoski, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got excited about the books. Are you watching? watching? Yeah. So I just finished watching the maid. Mm. I highly recommend that only when you have time to process any of the inner child work that you didn't realize that it's going to come up. Right. (laughs) Um, so watch the maid and, um, there's a lot of socioeconomic and domestic violence and And what you're all missing on video is me violently shaking my head. No. (laughs) Yeah. That's that one. You gotta be really prepared for read about it before you watch it. Yes, for sure. For sure. For sure. And take breaks. Really yes. is what I had to learn. That. Two, three years. Next- Got it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then my next question is when do you feel you're most like silly and free and joyful? So this is going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your, up your ass, but it's truly actually, I had a conversation with my kids yesterday. I have this very small circle. Sarah Zimmerman is one of the people that has allowed me to step more fully into my silly, full goofy, not protected self. Um, I'm so glad to be one of those people. I am so grateful that you were one of those people because it was, it was a new, new adventure for me. So definitely with my kids, 
I, I, I love being silly and ridiculous They're with them. fabulously creative weirdos. It's awesome. So they are. They're little weirdos. In your house. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think with my kids, with my husband and, and with a couple of close friends is when I can feel really be in that space. Oh, that's great. And then my last question is, um, how can we tell you are a life coach to women with, or tell us you're a life coach to women without telling us you're a life coach for women? I will 100% of the time believe team and be team you no matter what it is that you choose to do or not to do with me or with anybody else. I am 100% team you 100% of the time, regardless of how you show up in the world every day. Tasha's my new best friend. I know. Everybody, how do you listen to her and not want her as your best friend? I mean, she's She's intoxicating and delightful and offering so much love and support. And now, thankfully, able to receive love and support as well, which is the real coup, right? Learning. I'm learning still. Yeah. (laughs) Is it it bad that I'm swooning, by the way? Is Is that weird? No, she's used to it. It happens constantly in her life. Everywhere she goes, cashiers, the grocery store, she's just like having to beat people with a stick. Um, Well, thank you so much. This has been just a pure delight. And we went double the usual time that we go, but that's fine. (laughs) It's totally, it's great. (laughs) So I think you're going to have to agree to come back so we can actually finish the how you got to Florida and then how you're Oh yeah, this manuscript that's floating out in the world, leave it as a mystery for the rest of us. We'll come back. (laughs) We're going to come back to that. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate you letting me take double the time. Awesome. I'm a lot. I'm a, I'm a lot of, no, no, you, you have such and great life experience. We, we, yeah. We, we could put hours and be entertained and I think everyone else could too. So thank you yep. for being amazing. How about that? Mm, thank you. Thank you much. And we will talk to y'all soon. Thank you for listening to what won't she say. Find us at what won't she say.com where you can also listen to our episodes and get access to all of our social media accounts.